Section 8 of Three Years in Europe, or Places I Have Seen and People I Have Met. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Three Years in Europe, or Places I Have Seen and People I Have Met, by William Wells Brown. Letter 8 Departure from Paris Boulogne Folkestone London George Thompson Esquire, M.P. Hartwell House Dr. Lee Cottage of the Peasant Windsor Castle Residence of William Penn England's First Welcome Heath Lodge the Bank of England. London, September 8th. The sun had just appeared from behind a cloud and was setting, and its reflection upon the domes and spires of the great buildings in Paris made everything appear lovely and sublime, as the train, with almost lightning speed, was bringing me from the French metropolis. I gazed with eager eyes to catch a farewell glance of the tops of the regal palaces through which I had passed during a stay of fifteen days in the French capital. A pleasant ride of four hours brought us to Boulogne, where we rested for the night. The next morning I was up at an early hour, and out viewing the town. Boulogne could present but little attraction after a fortnight spent in seeing the lions of Paris. A return to the hotel, and breakfast over, we stepped on board the steamer, and were soon crossing the channel. Two hours more, and I was safely seated in a railway carriage, en route to the English metropolis. We reached London at midday, where I was soon comfortably lodged at 22 Cecil Street, Strand. As the London lodging houses seldom furnished dinners, I lost no time in seeking out a dining saloon which I had no difficulty in finding in the Strand. It being the first house of the kind I had entered in London, I was not a little annoyed at the politeness of the waiter. The first salutation I had after seating myself in one of the stalls was, Oxtail, sir? Gravy soup? Carrot soup, sir? Roast beef? Roast pork? Boiled beef? Roast lamb? Boiled leg of mutton, sir, with caper sauce. Jugged hare, sir. Boiled knuckle of veal and bacon. Roast turkey and oyster sauce. Sucking pig, sir. Curried chicken. Harico mutton, sir. These and many other dishes which I have forgotten were called over with a rapidity that would have done credit to one of our Yankee peddlers in crying his wares in a New England village. I was so completely taken by surprise that I asked for a bill of fare and told him to leave me. No city in the world furnishes a cheaper, better, and quicker meal for the weary traveler than a London eating-house. After spending a day in looking about through this great thoroughfare, the Strand, I sallied forth with letters of introduction with which I had been provided by my friends before leaving America and following the direction of one, I was soon at number 6A, Waterloo Place. A moment more, 
and I was in the presence of one of whom I had heard much, and whose name is as familiar to the friends of the slave in the United States as household words. Although I had never seen him before, yet I felt a feeling akin to love for the man who had proclaimed to the oppressors of my race in America the doctrine of immediate emancipation for the slaves of the great republic. On reaching the door, I sent in my letter, and it being fresh from the hands of William Lloyd Garrison, the champion of freedom in the New World, was calculated to ensure me a warm reception at the hands of the distinguished M.P. for the Tower Hamlets. Mr. Thompson did not wait for the servant to show me in, but met me at the door himself, and gave me a hearty shake of the hand, at the same time saying, Welcome to England. How did you leave Garrison? I need not add that Mr. T. gave me the best advice as to my course in Great Britain, and how I could best serve the cause of my enslaved countrymen. I never enjoyed three hours more agreeably than those I spent with Mr. T. on the occasion of my first visit. George Thompson's love of freedom, his labors in behalf of the American slave, the Negroes of the West Indies, and the wronged millions of India, are too well known to the people of both hemispheres to need a word of comment from me. With the single exception of the illustrious garrison, no individual is more loved and honored by the colored people of America and their friends than Mr. Thompson. A few days after my arrival in London, I received an invitation from John Lee Esquire, LLD, whom I had met at the Peace Congress in Paris, to pay him a visit at his seat near Aylesbury, and as the time was fixed by the doctor, I took the train on the appointed day on my way to Hartwell House. I had heard much of the aristocracy of England, and must confess that I was not a little prejudiced against them. On a bright sunshine day between the hours of twelve and two, I found myself seated in a carriage, my back turned upon Aylesbury, the vehicle whirling rapidly over the smooth, macadamized road, and I on my first visit to an English gentleman. Twenty minutes' ride, and a turn to the right, and we were amid the fine old trees of Hartwell Park, one having suspended from its branches the national banners of several different countries, among them the Stars and Stripes. I felt glad that my own country's flag had a place there, although Campbell's lines... United States, your banner wears two emblems, one of fame. Alas, the other that it bears reminds us of your shame. The white man's liberty in types stands blazoned by your stars. But what's the meaning of your stripes? They mean your negro scars. Were at the time continually running through my mind. Arrived at the door, and we received what everyone does who visits Dr. Lee, a hearty welcome. I was immediately shown into a room with a lofty ceiling, hung round with fine specimens of the Italian masters, and told that this was my apartment. Hartwell House stands in an extensive park, shaded with trees, that made me think of the oaks and elms in an American forest, and many of whose limbs had been trimmed and nursed with the best of care. This was for seven years the residence of John Hampton, the Patriot, and more recently that of Louis the Eighteenth, during his exile in this country. 
The house is built on a very extensive scale, and is ornamented in the interior with carvings in wood of many of the kings and princes of bygone centuries. A room some sixty feet by twenty-five contains a variety of articles that the doctor has collected together, the whole forming a museum that would be considered a sight in the western states of America. The morning after my arrival at Hartwell, I was up at an early hour, in fact, before any of the servants, wandering about through the vast halls, and trying to find my way out, in which I eventually succeeded, but not, however, without aid. It had rained the previous night, and the sun was peeping through a misty cloud as I strolled through the park, listening to the sweet voices of the birds that were fluttering in the tops of the trees and trimming their wings for a morning flight. The silence of the night had not yet been broken by the voice of man, and I wandered about the vast park unannoyed, except by the dew from the grass that wet my slippers. Not far from the house, I came abruptly upon a beautiful little pond of water, where the goldfish were flouncing about, and the gentle ripples glittering in the sunshine looked like so many silver minnows playing on the surface. While strolling about with pleasure, and only regretting that my dear daughters were not with me to enjoy the morning's walk, I saw the gardener on his way to the garden. I followed him, and was soon feasting my eyes upon the richest specimens of garden scenery. There were the peaches, hanging upon the trees that were fastened to the wall. Vegetables, fruit, and flowers were there in all their bloom and beauty, and even the variegated geranium of a warmer clime was there in its hothouse home, and seemed to have forgotten that it was in a different country from its own. Dr. Lee shows great taste in the management of his garden. I have seldom seen a more splendid variety of fruits and flowers in the southern states of America than I saw at Hartwell House. I should, however, state that I was not the only guest at Hartwell during my stay. Dr. Lee had invited several others of the American delegation to the Peace Congress, and two or three of the French delegates, who were on a visit to England, were enjoying the doctor's hospitality. Dr. Lee is a staunch friend of temperance, as well as of the cause of universal freedom. Every year he treats his tenantry to a dinner, and I need not add that these are always conducted on the principle of total abstinence. During the second day, we visited several of the cottages of the workpeople, and in these I took no little interest. The people of the United States know nothing of the real condition of the laboring classes of England. The peasants of Great Britain are always spoken of as belonging to the soil. I was taught in America that the English laborer was no better off than the slave upon a Carolina rice field. I had seen the slaves in Missouri huddled together three, four, and even five families in a single room, not more than fifteen by twenty-five feet square and I expected to see the same in England. But in this I was disappointed. After visiting a new house that the doctor was building, he took us into one of the cottages that stood near the road, and gave us an opportunity of seeing, for the first time, an English peasant's cot. We entered a low whitewashed room with a stone floor that showed an admirable degree of cleanliness. Before us was a row of shelves filled with 
earthen dishes and pewter spoons, glittering as if they had just come from under the hand of a woman of taste. A cobden loaf of bread, that had just been left by the baker's boy, lay upon an oaken table which had been much worn away with the scrubbing brush while just above lay the old family bible that had been handed down from father to son until its possession was considered of almost as great value as its contents a half-open door leading into another room showed us a clean bed the whole presenting as fine a picture of neatness order and comfort as the most fastidious taste could wish to see no occupant was present and therefore I inspected everything with a greater degree of freedom. In front of the cottage was a small grass plot, with here and there a bed of flowers, cheated out of its share of sunshine by the tall holly that had been planted near it. As I looked upon the home of the laborer, my thoughts were with my enslaved countrymen. What a difference, thought I, there is between the tillers of the soil in England and America there could not be a more complete refutation of the assertion that the English laborer is no better off than the American slave, than the scenes that were then before me. I called the attention of one of my American friends to a beautiful rose near the door of the cot, and said to him, The law that will protect that flower will also guard and protect the hand that planted it. He knew that I had drank deep of the cup of slavery, was aware of what I meant, and merely nodded his head in reply. I never experienced hospitality more genuine, and yet more unpretending, than was meted out to me while at Hartwell. And the favorable impression made on my own mind of the distinguished proprietor of Hartwell Park was nearly as indelible as my humble name that the doctor had engraven in a brick in the vault beneath the observatory in Hartwell House. On my return to London, I accepted an invitation to join a party on a visit to Windsor Castle, and, taking the train at the Waterloo Bridge Station, we were soon passing through a pleasant part of the country. Arrived at the castle, we committed ourselves into the hands of the servants, and were introduced into Her Majesty's State Apartments, Audience Chamber, Van Dyke Room, Waterloo Chambers, St. George's Hall, gold pantry and many others whose names i have forgotten in wandering about the different apartments i lost my company and in trying to find them passed through a room in which hung a magnificent portrait of charles i by van dyck the hum and noise of my companions had ceased and i had the scene in silence to myself i looked in vain for the king's evil genius cromwell but he was not in the same room the pencil of Sir Peter Lely has left a splendid full-length likeness of James the Second. George the Fourth is suspended from a peg in the wall, looking as if it was fresh from the hands of Sir Thomas Lawrence, its admirable painter. I was now in St. George's Hall, and I gazed upward to view the beautiful figures on the ceiling, until my neck was nearly out of joint. Leaving this room, I inspected with interest the ancient keep, of the castle. In past centuries this part of the palace was used as a prison. Here James I of Scotland was detained a prisoner for eighteen years. 
I viewed the window through which the young prince had often looked to catch a glimpse of the young and beautiful Lady Jane, daughter of the Earl of Somerset, with whom he was enamoured. From the top of the round tower I had a fine view of the surrounding country. Stoke Park, once the residence of that great friend of humanity and civilization, William Penn, was among the scenes that I viewed with pleasure from Windsor Castle. Four years ago, when in the city of Philadelphia, and hunting up the places associated with the name of this distinguished man, and more recently when walking over the farm once occupied by him on the banks of the Delaware, examining the old malt house which is now left standing, because of the veneration with which the name of the man who built it is held, I had no idea that I should ever see the dwelling which he had occupied in the old world. Stoke Park is about four miles from Windsor, and is now owned by the Right Honourable Henry Labouchere. The castle, standing as it does on an eminence, and surrounded by a beautiful valley covered with splendid villas, has the appearance of Gulliver looking down upon the Lilliputians. It rears its massive towers and irregular walls over and above every other object. It stands like a mountain in the desert. How full this old palace is of material for thought! How one could ramble here alone, or with one or two congenial companions, and enjoy a recapitulation of its history! But an engagement to be at Croydon in the evening cut short my stay at Windsor, and compelled me to return to town in advance of my party. Having met with John Morland, Esquire, of Heath Lodge at Paris, he gave me an invitation to visit Croydon, and deliver a lecture on American slavery, and last evening at eight o'clock I found myself in a fine old building in the town, and facing the first English audience that I had seen in the Seagirt Isle. It was my first welcome in England. The assembly was an enthusiastic one, and made still more so by the appearance of George Thompson, Esquire, M.P., upon the platform. It is not my intention to give accounts of my lectures or meetings in these pages. I therefore merely say that I left Croydon with a good impression of the English and Heath Lodge with a feeling that its occupant was one of the most benevolent of men. The same party with whom I visited Windsor being supplied with a card of admission to the Bank of England, I accepted an invitation to be one of the company. We entered the vast building at a little past twelve o'clock to-day. The sun threw into the large halls a brilliancy that seemed to light up the countenances of the almost countless number of clerks, who were at their desks or serving persons at the counters. As nearly all my countrymen who visit London pay their respects to this noted institution, I shall sum up my visit to it by saying that it surpassed my highest idea of a bank but a stroll through this monster building of gold and silver brought to my mind an incident that occurred to me a year after my escape from slavery. In the autumn of 1835, having been cheated out of the previous summer's earnings by the captain of the steamer in which I had been employed running away with the money, I was, like the rest of the men, left without any means of support during the winter, and therefore had to seek employment in the neighboring towns. I went to the town of Monroe, in the state of Michigan, 
and while going through the principal streets looking for work, I passed the door of the only barber in the town, whose shop appeared to be filled with persons waiting to be shaved. As there was but one man at work, and as I had, while employed in the steamer, occasionally shaved a gentleman who could not perform that office himself, it occurred to me that I might get employment here as a journeyman barber. I therefore made immediate application for work, but the barber told me he did not need a hand. But I was not to be put off so easily, and after making several offers to work cheap, I frankly told him that if he would not employ me, I would get a room near to him and set up an opposition establishment. This threat, however, made no impression on the barber, and as I was leaving, one of the men who were waiting to be shaved said, If you want a room in which to commence business, I have one on the opposite side of the street. This man followed me out. We went over, and I looked at the room. He strongly urged me to set up, at the same time promising to give me his influence. I took the room, purchased an old table, two chairs, got a pole with a red stripe painted around it, and the next day opened with a sign over the door, Fashionable Hairdresser from New York, Emperor of the West. I need not add that my enterprise was very annoying to the shop over the way, especially my sign, which happened to be the most expensive part of the concern. Of course, I had to tell all who came in that my neighbor on the opposite side did not keep clean towels, that his razors were dull, and, above all, he had never been to New York to see the fashions. Neither had I. In a few weeks, I had the entire business of the town to the great discomfiture of the other barber. At this time, money matters in the western states were in a sad condition. Any person who could raise a small amount of money was permitted to establish a bank, and allowed to issue notes for four times the sum raised. This being the case, many persons borrowed money merely long enough to exhibit to the bank inspectors, and the borrowed money was returned, and the bank left without a dollar in its vaults, if, indeed, it had a vault about its premises. The result was that banks were started all over the western states, and the country flooded with worthless paper. These were known as the wildcat banks. Silver coin being very scarce, and the banks not being allowed to issue notes for a smaller amount than one dollar, several persons put out notes from six to seventy-five cents in value. These were called shin-plasters. The shin-plaster was in the shape of a promissory note, made payable on demand. I have often seen persons with large rolls of these bills, the whole not amounting to more than five dollars. Some weeks after I had commenced business on my own hook, I was one evening very much crowded with customers, and while they were talking over the events of the day, one of them said to me, Emperor, you seem to be doing a thriving business. You should do as other businessmen, issue your shin plasters. This, of course, as it was intended, created a laugh, but with me it was no laughing matter for from that moment I began to think seriously of becoming a banker. I accordingly went a few days after to a printer, and he, wishing to get the job of printing, 
urged me to put out my notes, and showed me some specimens of engravings that he had just received from Detroit. My head being already filled with the idea of a bank, I needed but little persuasion to set the thing finally afloat. Before I left the printer, the notes were partly in type, and I studying how I should keep the public from counterfeiting them. The next day my shin-plasters were handed to me, the whole amount being twenty dollars, and after being duly signed, were ready for circulation. At first my notes did not take well. They were too new, and viewed with a suspicious eye. But through the assistance of my customers, and a good deal of exertion on my own part, my bills were soon in circulation, and nearly all the money received in return for my notes was spent in fitting up and decorating my shop. Few bankers get through this world without their difficulties, and I was not to be an exception. A short time after my money had been out, a party of young men, either wishing to pull down my vanity or to try the soundness of my bank, determined to give it a run. After collecting together a number of my bills, they came one at a time to demand other money for them, and I, not being aware of what was going on, was taken by surprise. One day, as I was sitting at my table, strapping some new razors I had just got with the avails of my shin-plasters, one of the men entered and said, Emperor, you will oblige me if you will give me some other money for these notes of yours. I immediately cashed the notes with the most worthless of the wildcat money that I had on hand, but which was a lawful tender. The young man had scarcely left when a second appeared with a similar amount and demanded payment. These were cashed, and soon a third came with his roll of notes. I paid these with an air of triumph, although I had but half a dollar left. I began now to think seriously what I should do, or how to act, provided another demand should be made. While I was thus engaged in thought, I saw the fourth man crossing the street with a handful of notes, evidently my shin-plasters. I instantaneously shut the door, and looking out of the window said, I have closed business for the day. Come tomorrow, and I will see you. In looking across the street, I saw my rival standing in his shop door, grinning and clapping his hands at my apparent downfall. I was completely done brown for the day. However, I was not to be used up in this way, so I escaped by the back door, and went in search of my friend who had first suggested to me the idea of issuing notes. I found him, told him of the difficulty I was in, and wished him to point out a way by which I might extricate myself. He laughed heartily, and then said, You must act as all bankers do in this part of the country. I inquired how they did, and he said, When your notes are brought to you, you must redeem them, and then send them out and get other money for them, and, with the latter, you can keep cashing your own shin-plasters. This was indeed a new job to me. I immediately commenced putting in circulation the notes which I had just redeemed, and my efforts were crowned with so much success that before I slept that night my shin-plasters were again in circulation, and my bank once more on a sound basis. As I saw the clerks shoveling out the yellow coin upon the counters of the Bank of England, and men coming in and going out with weighty bags of the precious metal in their hands or on their shoulders, 
I could not but think of the great contrast between the monster institution within whose walls I was then standing and the wildcat banks of America. End of letter 8 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista, 1989